0: 2 Chronicles chapter 11, 2 Chronicles chapter 11. And the topic is don't fight with your family. And I'm sure that doesn't apply to anybody here. We don't have those kind of problems in the family. So um, anyway, what we can learn from this would be very um, good for us. But it's about not fighting with our family. When Rehoboam Went back to Jerusalem after his coronation in Shechem. Remember, that's what we learned last week, that he went to Shechem for for his coronation, for being king. Well, he's come back to Jerusalem now, here in chapter 11. And when he returns to Jerusalem from Shechem, he finds that his kingdom has been reduced quite a bit. And as a result, he does a foolish thing, another foolish thing on top of remember last time he wouldn't listen to the uh, elder counselors that counseled his father. He listened to the young guys and and who gave him foolish counsel and and he he took their counsel. Well, he does another foolish thing here. And Rehoboam's foolishness from the get go is what divided his kingdom in the first place. And then he tries to bring them back together. Those that left his kingdom, he tries to bring them back by force. But you really can't force people to be united. You can't force people to get along with each other. They have to make that choice of their own free will. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, notice, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We were called to, work, to walk in a certain way. And this is how he said, with all lowliness, number one, in gentleness, number two, with long suffering, number three, and bearing with one another in love, number four. And he says, why? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So lowliness and gentleness and long suffering and bearing with one another in love. That is the way we are to walk. These are the four graces of unity. There has to be unity before there's any blessing. And Paul was concerned about the inevitable tensions and conflicts that arise in the church. The word endeavoring here, when he said endeavor, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, the word endeavor means to make effort. To make every effort you can If others want to quarrel with you, you have to do everything possible to make every effort not to quarrel with them. A peaceful disposition and behavior is what bind us together. Where on the other hand, strife and quarreling break and disunite our hearts and our affections. Paul said in Romans 12, 17, he says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you. Notice that. He's not talking about the other person as much as depends on you, because you are the Christian and whether they are not, you are the Christian. He said, live peaceably with all men. He said, Solomon said in Proverbs 29, 9, if a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether the fool rages or laughs, there is no peace. Now, that's kind of the answer to the first one in Romans twelve seventeen that you are to what depend, you know, as much as depends on you, you are to live peaceably with all men. But Solomon was saying here that there are just some people that nobody can get along with. So that's why as much as lies in you, you do all that you can. That means you've done what God has asked you to do. Now, if that other person doesn't want to make peace or get along, that's their problem. And that's what they have to do. And they're going to you know, give an account to God. Paul said in Ephesians four, four through six, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Here in verses four through six of Ephesians four is the sevenfold unity and its form. Notice around the, the Trinity, one spirit, one Lord, one God. If you want the loyalty of employees, if you want the loyalty of children or anybody else that you're in charge of, win their respect. Win their respect through love instead of trying to get them to submit by force. So let's begin now with chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, remember, coming back from Shechem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin, which is the southern kingdom. 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to do what notice to fight against israel that he might restore the kingdom to rehoboam Now remember south the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. They're both israel But they've been there's been a split and now they divided into the southern and the northern kingdom So the southern kingdom was to fight against israel, which was the northern kingdom their brothers and, and he was trying to do this uh, in order to restore the kingdom back to himself. So Rehoboam wanting to bring the kingdom back to himself because they have split, he's going to go to war with them. But notice the word of the Lord came in verse 2 to Shemaiah the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up to fight against your brother or against your brethren. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore, they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. Rehoboam might have thought that he had a good reason to support himself going to war and fighting against his brothers. He might have thought that the tribes had an acceptable or righteous reason to revolt and break away from him. And that their leaving would seriously and even fatally weaken Israel. And he put her at the mercy of her powerful and corrupt neighbors. But notice it says the word of the Lord came to him through Shemaiah. That means it came from the man of God with authority. The word of God came to, to, to Jeroboam. And he says to Jeroboam, you shall not go up or fight against your brothers. So this potential war was stopped. Now, God's command here to Jeroboam may, may teach or remind us of the unpleasantness of family quarrels. This kind of vicious violence not only gave a black eye to the history of the first human family, this to, again, Israel, but it's, be, it's this bitter strife that also, time and time again, divides brothers and sisters into blamers and defenders. It also, it's also the unforgiven offense. Or the never-ending argument that keeps families apart. Or makes people's hearts bitter and cold that should be filled with warmth and love for each other. And it's also the daily bickering and finger-pointing and strife that brings displeasure to God. It's not just that there's strife going on, but it's the absence of love. It's the lack of kindness to one another. It's the lack of thoughtfulness and and tone. That brings God this displeasure. God, who is always saying, Jesus said, as I have loved you, love one another. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, uh, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieve means to make sad. Don't make sad the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He goes on to say, let all bitterness, wrath, anger clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another even as god in christ forgave you also this command may teach or remind us of the painful wrong of church strife how many churches are ineffective because of strife between the believers you know they're divided among themselves Now, thank God there are some controversies where there's some honest differences of opinion and and method, but people don't get bitter hearts. But way too many times inside the walls of the same Christian family, whether it's a church or home, that difference hardens their heart and it and it turns into conflict. This is where the strong, important command here should not be questioned or debated. But obeyed, God said, you shall not Fight against your brothers, your family. Now, we might not be able to explain perfectly what our differences are. and A lot of times we don't even know why we're fighting. But here's the deal. If our eyes are on the Lord and his work is more important to us than our own petty desires, we'll set aside any and all differences when we listen to and obey the Lord's command here do not go up and fight against your brethren or Paul's command in 1 Thessalonians five thirteen: Be at peace among yourselves. God's command here may teach or remind us of the particular wickedness of family war. What a sad picture here. Seeing the armies of Judah, the southern kingdom of whom Jeroboam was king. They're all lined up. They got their weapons sharpened and ready to go against the armies of Israel, which which is their brothers in the northern kingdom. All of them are the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they're looking to kill each other. They're ready to shed one another's blood. God's people using their weapons against each other. Blowing their witness for righteousness And helping to put out the light that they were in the world. Israel was to be a light to the nations around them. And for hundreds of years, the heavenly father, the creator of man, has looked down on many sad and disgraceful family wars, whether where fathers and sons or brothers and brothers have met in deadly fights on the battlefield. Wars where the hearts of those united by the strongest possible bonds, blood and family. Have been angered against one another. By the cruelest emotions. There's no doubt that negotiating and compromise should be carried out to the the very last imaginable point. Before men go up and fight against their brethren. God's command points to also the wrongness of all wars. If they can be avoided. Because we're all brothers. Because we're all members of one another. It doesn't matter what nationality we are. We are children of the same Heavenly Father. We're born again of the same Holy Spirit. We're heirs together of the grace of God in Christ. We all drink from the same spiritual rock. We all suffer from the same great spiritual problems. We all struggle against the same spiritual enemies. We're all pilgrims on the way to the same glorious future. We're all the redeemed of the same Savior. We're workers in the same mission fields. We're citizens of the same heavenly home. So then, is it a good thing that we who are brothers and sisters who beneath our superficial differences and are so closely and deeply united to one another should be planning each other's destruction? And in rejoicing in one another's humiliation and and be using our greatest skills to shed each other's blood? For all those who would go to war at the drop of a hat and it don't take much for some people or, or for some petty reason or for no reason at all comes this strong and serious command to all of us. You shall not fight against your brothers. So God says, let every man return to his. I let everybody go home. God said, let everybody go home. He says, because this thing is from me. He says, because what has happened, this splitting of the kingdom is my doing. How much does God have to do with the events and the circumstances of our life? Everything, everything. And we're totally wrong and foolish if we don't take that into account. God is involved in our affairs. Now, God does not create evil. But he will allow evil that that we bring upon ourselves or that comes into. He will allow it to be used as an instrument. To work out his will and purposes in my life. The words of the text here together with the context. Suggest that God does a lot of things we'd never expect him to do. And I think we can all agree to that. And we need to, to take this into account. We need to understand this. Who would have expected that he would allow the kingdom of Israel to be divided? These were his people. But we had the warnings in chapter 10, verse 15. That he was going to do this. That he was going to allow it. It seems it would have been so much better in many ways that this little kingdom should stay together, united and strong, instead of becoming divided and weak. Now, in our own thinking, we would have thought that in God's wisdom, oh, he would have come up with some other way to punish Solomon for his pride and his defection. And for Rehoboam's childlike and foolish behavior. We think, God, that would have done something that what the text tells us he did. We would have thought that there might have been some personal humiliation or some temporary national disaster that they would have recovered from right away. But you see, that wasn't God's plan. And even though his plan might always be a mystery. It's for sure that dividing the kingdom was God's doing. And all through the history of mankind in the course of Christianity, we have seen or we have read of the same thing before. Sometimes we see it in the lives of men. How many times have we wondered why the bad guys (laughs) live long lives and the good guys lives are cut short? Psalm 73, Asaph went through this dilemma. He said, I almost lost my footing. Basically, I almost backslid. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. And he tells us why. Because I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everybody else. But I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. We look around, say, Lord, look at all the evil and the wicked people in and they're just breezing along and I'm serving you and I'm walking with you and I'm doing, you know, everything that I think I should. And man, I am experiencing nothing but pain. Don't forget this, this suffering we have. Paul said it's but for a moment. Compared to eternity. And they, if those that are experienced that are they're in, enjoying their wickedness and, and you know all the evil that they're doing and, and if they don't come to Christ they'll be they'll be pay, uh, paying for that in all of eternity. And we got to keep that into account. It's so hard sometimes to believe that this thing or that thing was done by the Lord or allowed by the Lord. And yet we know that the guilty don't live the guilty don't live one day longer than God allows them to. And we know from Psalm 115, 16, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And even though we can't see it. Understand that God pulls the strings of human life. He's the master puppeteer, if you will. He holds the strings. He pulls the strings. Or later on down the road, uh, what, uh, you know, uh, he, he's directing everything. He's directing everything. And those circumstances at the time or what we experience later on down the road, they may seem strange and terrible, but they will prove to have been kind and wise and right by the Lord. Mark seven thirty-seven says that he has done all things things well the words of the text here together with the context suggest also that the guilty think of this the guilty should credit god for their foolish deeds in other words rehoboam's foolish behavior at shechem obviously had a lot to do with the political disaster that followed and yet god had so much to do with it that he said this thing is from me Crime, depravity, foolishness, sin. Now, God doesn't cause them. He don't bring those, doesn't bring those things. But he uses them like it to work out their goal. The one who commits those things to work out their goal in poverty, in shame, in sorrow, and death. The person who lives a moral life looks down on the fallen wrongdoer and says, though not totally true, you know what, you have brought this on yourself. It's your own guilty hand that's brought you down. You have nobody to blame but yourself. Hey, God was involved in it too. Again, James tells us that God does not create evil. He does not bring about evil, but he will use it again in the punishment of somebody else because of their sin. And yet with the same truth, and maybe with greater wisdom and kindness, the prophet of the Lord comes to Jeroboam, and he says this purpose of evil is of God. He's brought it about. He let it happen. It's the sign of his own. It's a sign of his divine pleasure. And it's a and it's a call to another path. To a better path. God is going to use all of this for, for, for betterment in his life. And on the other hand, we can add this. That the good should that the good should and do. Give him credit for the results of their labors. The good should and do, should give him credit and do give him credit for the results of their labors. If it's the work of God's righteous laws. And in that way, the working of his hand, then sin ends in misery and ruin. So it's again on the other side. It's the outworking of God's kindness. It's the result of his wisdom and his goodness. It's the effect of his action, whether it's direct or indirect, that the fields are ready to harvest. That he makes all things ready. That his disciples bring forth fruit. That character is maturing and getting ready for heaven's harvest. These things are also of him. He makes all things ready. Verses 5 through 12. So Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. And he built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Beth, Zor, Uh, Adullam, Gath, Marishah, Ziph, uh, Adoram, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron, which are in Judah and Benjamin, again, the southern kingdom, fortified cities. And he fortified the strongholds, and he put captains in them, and and stores of food, oil, and wine. Also, in every city he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin, again, the southern kingdom, on his side. So Rehoboam now fortifies Judah, the southern kingdom. The center of worship, I'm sorry, he sort of, he 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 uh, fortifies Judah again, the southern kingdom. And Rehoboam definitely needed to do that. He needed protection on all sides because Jeroboam, the northern kingdom, remember, 10 tribes composed the northern kingdom. Benjamin and Judah were the only ones in the southern kingdom. So King uh, Rehoboam needed to put this protection on all sides because Jeroboam, the northern tribes had the advantage because of their numbers. And because of their commercial trade. Verses 13 through 17. And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites, notice, who were in Israel, took their stand with him. That is with Jeroboam, even though they were uh, with Rehoboam, even though they were with Jeroboam, they were taking their stand with Rehoboam. Verse 14. For the Levites, notice, left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. So they're going back to Rehoboam because Jeroboam wouldn't allow them to serve the Lord the way they wanted to. Then it says he appointed for himself. That is Jeroboam. Jeroboam appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons and the calf idols, which he had made. That's why the others wanted to go back to to Rehoboam. To worship the true and the living God. Verse 16. And after the Levites left. Notice those from all the tribes of Israel. Such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel. Notice they came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And made Rehoboam the son of Solomon. Notice strong for three years. Because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So before the nation split. The center of worship was in Jerusalem, and the people gathered there for the three great yearly religious feasts. During the rest of the year, other worship services and rituals took place in the tribal territories by priests and Levites who lived throughout the land. They would offer their sacrifices, taught God's laws, and encourage the people to continue to follow God and to avoid the heathen influences. After the nation split, Jeroboam, the new king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he saw these priests and these Levites that wanted to follow the true and the living God. He saw them as threats to his government because they kept their loyalty to God. They kept their loyalty to Jerusalem, not the capital of Judah. So he appoints, so Jeroboam appoints his own priests. He bans the Levites, the true Levites from God. He he bans them from their duties and he forces them to the southern kingdom. Jeroboam's heathen priests encouraged idol worship. So now with the absence of spiritual leaders, the northern kingdom of Israel. Where Jeroboam was king was now in danger of abandoning God because the true spiritual leaders had gone. They didn't want to stay there under King Jeroboam and worship these demons and gods. So again, going back to Jerusalem, where the center of worship was, was, it suggests to us how hard the struggle is to go back. These servants of Jehovah, these priests and the people, they had to get over big obstacles in order to take the step they decided on. They had they, they wanted to let go of old and sacred relations, or I should say they had to let go. Of old and sacred relations they had to leave their neighbors and they had to leave many of them who were probably relatives many had to leave their jobs and longtime friends they had to fight against their emotions to live to leave those that were close to them to go back and to worship the true and the living God you see many times to do the right thing to worship the true and the living God there are hard decisions that we have to make and again sometimes it's it's leaving People in areas that we love, that we're close to. Now, they had sacrificial. They they had to sacrifice material, the the, the material advantages. We read that the Levites in verse fourteen, notice, left their common lands and their possessions. They sacrificed material things, their homes and their property, and we can be sure that those who weren't Levites. And who had an even greater reason for staying in the land made even greater sacrifices than they did. The families must have gone out not knowing that the thing that, that, that the things uh, that the what things would happen to them. They went out not knowing, but knowing that they would encounter serious loss and discomfort. They left, like I said, not knowing what would happen to them, but they left knowing that they would. Encounter serious loss and discomfort, and they would miss a lot of what they were used to having and enjoying. But you see, their choice showed their wisdom. They pleased God by their choice, and God would accept and honor their faithfulness for going back. It was an act of faithfulness and obedience to God. They kept their self respect. They wouldn't they wouldn't have kept their self-respect if they'd continued to to worship the false gods of Jeroboam that God that Jeroboam had instituted and that he had insisted on. Then they would have sunk far and fast, spiritually speaking, and they would have lost all the hole that they had on the truth. Also, this shows that they made a decision that that elevated them, that exalted them that lifted them high <clears throat> what they did not only entitled them to the honor of their countrymen but by which they it committed they committed themselves definitely to the service of god and confirmed their own faith in god they came to a place by leaving the worship of the demons and the false gods they came to a place in doing that where they could take part now in worshiping god According to the requirements of their own conscience. They knew what was the right thing to do. They they set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel. Verse 16 says they they came. Notice where they could sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. Now they lost a lot of temporal stuff. A lot of material stuff. But they gained so, so much more in spiritual advantage. They didn't sow to their flesh. They sowed to the spirit. And many times we can't rationalize away God's teachings in order to gain earthly things. These people left brick houses behind them, homes, solid to come to a place where they could build up the house of a holy character of a good and useful life. And there's no doubt there are many things to think about That would influence us moving from one town and church to another. But let spiritual considerations have the greater influence in making that decision. In other words, many times people will leave a a good Bible teaching church where they're growing and they're being fed and they're flourishing. Because maybe it's too far. And they'll settle. For a church that, well, it isn't quite teaching the the word of God. And, you know, I'm not being fed like I was. But for sake of convenience, they'll go there and they'll stay there. Again, there are many things to consider. That would influence us from 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 moving from one town to another. But again, it should be the spiritual consideration. Where am I? Are they being taught the word of God? Are they teaching it from Genesis to Revelation? Word upon word, line upon line, precept upon precept. You know, are they, are they adhering to the Bible? Do they believe that it's infallible? Do they believe that it's, there, that it's the perfect word of God? I need to know that. That's the most important consideration when you pick a church. Verses 18 through 23. Then Rehoboam took for himself as wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abihail, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children, Jehu, Shemariah, Shemariah and Zaham. After, uh, after her, he took Ma- uh, Maacah the granddaughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelemith. Now, now Rehoboam loved Ma- Maacah the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and his concubines. For he took 18 wives and 60 concubines and begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. And Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. He dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin to every fortified city. And he gave them provisions in abundance. He also uh, sought many wives for them. We see in Jeroboam, there's this spiritual mixture of foolishness and wisdom. You know, after we read the first 14 verses of chapter 10, where he made the foolish decision of listening to the younger counselors than the uh, elders of his father, who had the better counsel. Again, after reading the first 14 verses of chapter 10, you wouldn't expect to hear the words about Rehoboam in verse 23 here. He dealt wisely. But this king... Who, could, who, proved to be, who, could prove, who proved to be that he could be, be very foolish, wasn't always foolish. Like a lot of people, he had and was a spiritual mixture. Now, we look at the unusual mixture here that we find in him, this unusual spiritual mixture. The information there is about Rehoboam, there's not a lot. It's only in two or three short chapters. But in them, we see six wise and four foolish actions. Rehoboam was very wise when he took the time to consult with others, but again we see the foolishness—you know—in uh, not listening and taking the counsel of the young men. He was foolish in sending his ministers to collect taxes from those who were complaining angrily about their taxation, but he was wise in listening to God, forbidding him to go to war with his brethren. He was wise in fortifying and storing the strongholds on the borders. He was wise in welcoming the priests and the people back to Judah, whom Jeroboam had driven away. But he was very foolish in desiring many wives and in establishing a large harem. He was wise in choosing so many from the stock of David and in scattering his sons throughout his small kingdom where they they, they couldn't quarrel among themselves but be some service to him. And they were wise in walking in the way of David, but foolish in leaving there after three years of obedience. We also see that this spiritual mixture is in us. And it's good to remember what true Christians really are. Not perfect. We are not perfect. Many huge, many and huge mistakes are made. By us judging Christian character. Expecting to find in other people's hearts what can't be found this side of heaven. Perfection. We need to settle in our minds right now that Christians aren't perfect. They're only converted sinners saved by grace. They're sinners born again, renewed. Changed, sanctified, but they're still sinners and will be till the day we die. The child of God needs to understand these things and has to learn to judge correctly himself and others. And rarely will we find the saint who doesn't often need prayer. Mark 9, 24, it says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time. That is before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. God doesn't judge us until we're dead. So why should we be judging one another now? We don't know what's going on in the heart of somebody. In closing, it's helpful to remember, number one, that Christian character is a mixture of good with evil it's goodness but not without sometimes us veering off the road you know a little while, uh, to the right or to the left sometimes it's a sincere desire or an honest and devout effort that we want to walk with the lord but it's not a complete accomplishment yet we're not there yet it's a battle that will end in victory one day but it's not a total victory yet secondly It's necessary to be careful how we judge. One failure does not make a Christian a total failure. Neither does a dozen failures. It's what's in the depth of their heart. It's not what we see on the surface. And it's not good behavior that decides our position, thank God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never that means we continue to love people we don't give up on them because we see them blow it love keeps on loving in spite of others failures jesus is a great example of that he loves me in spite of my failure, failures yesterday in spite of my failures today and in spite of my failures tomorrow John 13, when it says he loved his disciples to the end. And God will love us to the end. Third, there are a lot of impurities mixed in with the pure gold of our character. Father, we thank you for your word here, Lord. Father, we thank you for all that we can glean from this chapter, God. And Father, help us to love one another. Not judge one another, God. Lord, help us to pray for one another. Not reject one another, God. Lord, help us to bear one another's burdens. God, help us to bear with one another in love, as Paul said. Because none of us are perfect. We all blow it and we're going to blow it. God knows this. Think about it. He chose us anyway. He didn't choose perfect people. He chose people willing. To obey him. To walk with him. In a sincere and honest effort. And there are times that we will veer off of that narrow road. But he will help us to get back on it. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you have veered off of that road and. Or never have gotten on that road. That narrow road. To eternal life. Well he's the only one that can put you on that road. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to get on that narrow road. That leads to eternal life. And get off of that broad road that leads to destruction. Then as we worship you get up out of your seat. You make your way to the steps up front here. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we can pray together. A simple prayer of faith.